0: I always get a little nervous when Congress looks at things closely because just as much bad can come out of Congress having ideas as good things can come out of Congress having ideas we experienced that a lot when we got Sarbanes-Oxley after Enron and WorldCom my real fear is that people will decide that new regulations need to happen before they have completely figured out what went wrong and that's that's always unnerving to me is to have a solution before you find the problem
1: this is lawyer to lawyer with j craig williams and robert ambrosi two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession and yes they are attorneys one from California and one from Massachusetts. Squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambroji coming to you from Massachusetts.
2: And this is Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court and have a book out called How to Get Sued.
1: Bob? And I write a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and also the legal blog watch for law.com. Well, in light of recent bailouts, uh, AIG, Citigroup, requests from GM and other automakers, uh, the list seems to be growing by the day. Will there be a focus uh, over the next year on more stringent corporate governance, on new rules relating to corporate governance? Since Sarbanes-Oxley was, Oxley was passed by Congress in 2002, the intent of restoring public confidence in corporate governance we're now in a new phase, perhaps, of distrust of our corporate giants. Well, in the off-the-chart CEO salaries
2: and uh, visits to famous spas and mismanagement without accountability are questions that are on the minds of Main Street. Top brass from U.S. automakers flying in expensive corporate jets to go and ask for taxpayer monies. Um, bring their failures to a new low? Are we crossing the line
1: between free market and government intervention without checks and balances? Well, we're going to ask that question today on Lawyer to Lawyer. We're going to talk to uh, two experts uh, who can talk to us about corporate governance and compliance, what big corporations need to do when it comes to reform, and take a look ahead at what corporate governance will look like uh, perhaps under a new administration.
2: Well... Our first guest today, Bob, is Mary Mack. She is the Corporate Technology Counsel at, at Fios. It's a, she's a compliance expert. She's a hands-on strategic advisor to counsel for some of the largest products liability class actions, government investigations, and intellectual property disputes. Her clients include the largest law firms, pharmaceutical companies, and insurance companies in the world. She's one of the leading speakers and authors on electronic discovery issues, technology, and the law. She's the co-author of the new Thomson Reuters treatise, E-discovery for Corporate Counsel, author of the corp- a popular book, A Process of Illumination, The Practical Guide to Electronic Discovery, and hosts the blog Sound Evidence, featured on discoveryresources.org.
1: Welcome to the show, Mary Mack.
3: Well, thanks very much. Glad to be here.
1: And joining us next today is Professor Nancy Rappaport, the Gordon and Silver Limited Professor at the William S. Boyd School of Law at the University of Nevada in Las Vegas. Uh, Nancy Rappaport, started her career as a law clerk to Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals Judge Joseph T. Sneed, uh, and then practiced law, primarily in the area of bankruptcy law with Morrison and Forrester in San Francisco uh, from 1986 to 1991. Uh, she has held uh, a number of teaching uh, and deanship positions uh, leading up to her present position. She is also continues to specialize in, in the areas of bankruptcy ethics, ethics and governance, and the depiction of lawyers in popular culture. Uh, she has the uh, the distinct credential of having appeared in an Academy Award-nominated movie, Enron, The Smartest Guys in the Room. Uh, and she has a new book out entitled Rappaport, Van Neil, and Darren's Enron and Other Corporate Fiascos, the Corporate Scandal Reader, second edition. And she also has a blog, Nancy Rappaport's Blogspot. Welcome to the show, Professor Nancy Rappaport.
0: It's great to be here on this day before Thanksgiving.
1: Well, uh, let's start uh, a little bit uh, uh, looking uh, perhaps ahead a little bit. Uh, uh, Nancy, uh, let's start with you. Uh, you write a lot about uh, compliance issues and governance issues. Uh, what do you see coming out of this, uh, the scandals that we've been hearing a lot about over the last oh, months, is it, uh, now? Um And with a new administration coming in, uh, with uh, uh, Congress looking at this more closely, uh, what do you see uh, coming down the pike?
0: I always get a little nervous when Congress looks at things closely because (laughs) just as much bad can come out of Congress having ideas as good things can come out of Congress having ideas. We experienced that a lot when we got Sarbanes-Oxley after Enron and WorldCom. My real fear is that people will decide that new regulations need to happen before they have completely figured out what went wrong. And that's that's always unnerving to me, is to have a solution before you find the problem.
1: Isn't that the way legislatures work?
0: Yeah, but <laughs> it, it, there, there's, my theory is first do no harm it would be a lovely change of pace. Well, what
3: do you think about, uh, Sarbanes has been looked at over the years as not really getting to the heart of the matter, you know, sort of paperclip counting, as opposed to going to the large risks that we've just seen, um, and having it be a reason for companies to um, to move to say London to to escape uh, some of those regulations. Uh, do you think that that will be a counterbalance to uh, you know just pouring on more regulation?
0: Well, I hope so. I I also hope that with the new administration, the president is going to or the president-elect is surrounding himself with a ton of smart people. And it's a combination of knowing what we already know has always been wrong, which is the incentives that separate risk from responsibility need to be changed to link risk and responsibility. But they can't do it by by counting paperclips. They have to do it by looking at a bigger pr- picture. the It's really more of a question of figuring out how do you get the people who are making the decisions to bear not just the upside but the downside if their decisions are stupid.
2: Well, isn't that what the free market's all about?
0: Yeah, but the free market presumes information too. And I don't know if, if the companies are really spewing forth the kind of information that would help people decide whether to buy or not. When do we find out that, jet, that executives are jetting to Congress for bailouts? After things have gone south. When do we find out that AIG loves spas and hunting trips? After things have gone south, not during.
1: Well, what does that tell us about uh, the, the potential for coming up with a viable uh, uh, legislative code, policy, uh, ethics code uh, for professional responsibility in in business, corporate responsibility. I mean, it it seems that every time we try and do this, there's a lot of talk and and a lot of uh, nodding of heads in agreement, and then everybody promptly seems to ignore everything that's been done.
0: (laughs) Well, I think you're right. I think that part of it is that we need to start moving people more towards a long-term view of their decisions, meaning that if you're giving people incentives that can be cashed out easily, that if you're, if you're giving them opportunities to bail without having to pay the price for their decisions, for example, look at UBS and its decision to go for negative bonuses when things go south. I love that idea. They're actually linking risk and responsibility. Yeah, and the G20
3: has recommended that, Yeah, that uh, compensation uh, uh, discourage ex- excessive short-term returns or risk-taking.
2: And how can government actually play a role in this? I mean, isn't it really just something that the companies should be handling on their own and that should be able to figure out, you know, if they fail, they fail, and if why should we go in and rescue them?
0: Well, I, I'm a bankruptcy lawyer, too. I, I honestly think that if they fail, they fail. But that's kind of harsh, isn't it, for a person who has life tenure to say. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> But not every corporation deserves to succeed forever. Well, I mean, let's look at what
2: what uh, the big three automakers. I mean, uh, Congress has kind of pulled back and said, you know, maybe you need to fail, and maybe the this, there are situations that you've put yourself into that are so far down that we just can't get you out of it. I mean, isn't that what Chapter Seven's all about?
0: Chapter Seven, or if if the fundamentals of the business could be rescued, reorganizing them is not a horrible thing. I don't completely understand the fuss over why chapter 11 would instantly destroy everything. I just don't get it.
1: Well, we we've actually talked about this on the on the show before. It talked, you know, analogized to the to the airline industry where it's it's chapter eleven. It seemed seemed to work well, but aren't we, are we kind of talking about a, a couple of different things here? I mean, when we talk about some of the the scandals that brought around brought about Sarbanes Oxley, we're talking about uh, investors and consumers perhaps getting ripped off, uh, in uh, and at least at least shareholders getting ripped off here. We're we're talking uh, more about the, the, sort of the post-collapse effect on consumers. If if GM goes under, what does it do to the workforce? What does it do to the consumers? Are these are these different issues than than Sarbanes Oxley uh, addressed?
0: Well, I think they are different. I think that there are a couple of themes that run throughout, and the book that we are just putting the finishing touches on now talks about one of the problems with any regulations, any regulation that it ignores. Human nature, humans are hardwired to make certain types of cognitive mistakes, and smart people are particularly good at fooling themselves. So if you don't give people some sort of method of checking their instincts at the door, if if you don't say to them, you, you realize that when you separate risk from responsibility, you always get the same result, Right. If you don't give them an opportunity to work through fairly hardwired patterns of thinking, it doesn't matter what kind of a regulation you're going to have, because the smartest people doing the stupidest things don't think they're going to get caught.
3: Well, I think there's been another thing that's happened here is, as smart as we all are as attorneys and as smart as the mathematicians and statisticians uh, and physicists that develop the models are, I think that... In the financial system, at least, we don't really understand what happened, right. and the companies that sold products or bought products don't really understand what they sold or what they bought.
0: I think you're absolutely right and the and the scary thing is is lawyers are papering over deals that they might not understand either
3: well i yeah I think that yeah. that's an issue, and then the accounting firms right. um and then the credit rating agencies, and I would see some legislation coming out for um regulating the credit um rating agencies um under all of this but i think in terms of corporate governance the over what i'd like to see is a, is a duty to understand you know know what business you're in know what products you're selling know what risks you're taking and the risks that you're that you're putting on um on the other side and have those be understandable enough for say the audit committee of a board of directors to um, uh, you know, to steward and to and to be responsible for.
1: But Mary, Mary wouldn't that be implied in, in the fiduciary responsibilities of a of a uh, at least a public company executive or board member?
3: Well, I think it is implied, but I think that um, if we look at what's unfolded over the last three months, do. G- do any of us really understand those tranches and how those tranches of triple B's got rated as as triple A's? And what in the world is a synthetic CDO? <laughs> and how could you possibly sell that? <laughs> uh, so, uh, I, I think that the interviews that I've seen of some of the the executives and the board of directors they aren't they aren't talking. But if you look at their backgrounds, a lot of them don't have financial backgrounds, I don't, think, I don't think that there was a clear understanding of what was happening and what the level of risk was.
0: And if you add to that a tendency of any group, and this goes back to cognitive mistakes people make, a tendency of any group to want to go along sort of naturally and not have naysayers i would love to here's the reform i would love to see i would love to see someone on each board have to take the role of the loyal opposition have to try to poke holes in in deals before they go through rather than all, everybody nodding his or her head, saying, yeah, this makes sense to me. We need someone who will actually structurally say, let's go through this step by step. You haven't persuaded us yet.
1: The, the chief devil's advocate in the company. Exactly.
0: Right? What a great na- acronym we could get from that, too. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I, like I can imagine several people that would be good for that position. But didn't, didn't Warren Buffett really put it simply when he said that you spend more than you earn? I mean, isn't that really where you're going?
0: that's part of it also though isn't part of it that he never invests in stuff he doesn't understand
3: yes that is that is his his mantra and i don't think that there there's anything wrong with taking on debt uh for something that, that you know that's an investment and is going to bring you a return and when you understand what that debt is and if we go to the heart of the subprime unsophisticated uh, first time home buyers and i've I've purchased a home and i've 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 gotten my stack of what is it about mm, four to six inches of paper mm-hmm. that I'm initialing all over the place uh, so you have some in, unsophisticated buyers uh, uh moving into adjustables when perhaps a fixed rate uh, would have been a you know a few dollars a month more. Right.
2: But but isn't everybody possibly. when they when they first buy a home isn't everybody unsophisticated the first time you buy it?
3: Yeah, and, and fearful, and yeah. try reading fine print when you're fearful. <laughs> so I I would look for some reforms in in predatory lending and disclosure documents and and things of that nature. I, I, I would I would think that that's going to come out. Uh, in the next Congress, and I, I don't necessarily think that'll be a bad thing.
2: How about plain English? I mean, we have a, a lawyer right now who's arguing in the in the case of the um, internet suicide of this woman who says whoever reads those end-user license agreements that everybody signs because they're too long and nobody spends any time reading them. And just The argument is essentially nobody reads the ream of paperwork that you get when you buy a house and legitimately so to some degree because you, know, you walk into the escrow office and you have less than five minutes to sign them.
3: And you, it, you really can't change the documents at that time unless you push off your, push off your closing and then your interest rate goes crazy. Potentially.
0: But we could train lawyers, since since I do work in a law school. We could train lawyers to write more clearly, so that at least people understand their choices.
2: Well, that's a one semester class in law school, isn't it? Legal not writing. Not
0: anymore. Not at not at a lot of schools. Now we're writing into the second year. and my fantasy world, is we write every semester
3: but until legal we get isn't people to be
0: able to express things well.
3: Well, legal writing, if I recall, <laughs> isn't something that that somebody with a high school education is going to be able to understand
0: necessarily. Um,
2: I can so if they write the, it plainly.
0: Right. Well, if we can teach plainly, people think, to I use think, actual, actual real words instead of lawyerese, we could come a long way. But it's still not going to change high, C-level corporate behavior. We have, to do, we have to do something structurally to get corporations to understand that the group dynamic, the tendency of people still to be selected for boards who are all the same, all of those dynamics contribute to these mistakes.
1: We have, uh, I mean, we have Mary uh, saying that she'd like to see a, a, a duty to a duty to understand, perhaps. Uh, Nancy talking about it, a duty to ask the tough questions and be devil's advocate. Uh, it, it, you know, uh, Nancy, at the beginning of this, you said that uh, before Congress or policymakers act, they really have to understand what what the problem was. What what, what else? Uh, should be should they be looking at uh, in addition to those in addition to understanding and asking the tough questions? Is is that really what it comes down to, or is there more to it than that?
0: I think when we assume, I think there's a little more to it, and I obviously I don't think anyone understands the whole thing. I think each of us understands bits and pieces of it, but before we want the free market to fix something, we have to understand that the free market gave us all sorts of bad signals this last go round that things were were much more much safer than they actually were. They looked more se- more secure and more financially viable than they actually were. And it comes back to Mary's idea. Folks didn't understand how scary this was. One of the best people who talks about how scary a lot of this is is a guy out of the University of San Diego, Professor Frank Partnoy. And he's been, he's been warning about not understanding this stuff for over a decade.
2: Who listens to naysayers?
0: Um. Well, I think that if we, if we want to actually get the smartest people to be willing to absorb the risk, we need to get someone to listen to naysayers. No one likes them. We're a bunch of whiners. But someone needs to listen to the whiners and make sure that the decisions aren't rushed through. Was it Harry Truman who said that if people agreed way too soon, then there was something obviously wrong with their thinking? We need to slow down and think again?
2: That's exactly right. Well, Nancy, we've uh, reached, I think, the end of the time for you to be with us during the program, so why don't you uh, give us your final thoughts and your contact information, and then we can take a break.
0: Thanks, and I've really enjoyed being on this. I think the message I want to get across is that no amount of legislation or regulation is going to change the human condition or the human's ability to fool himself, so it has to be more than just a bunch of rules or a bunch of laws that get us out of this. We need to start thinking about how the human condition contributes to these mistakes, and we need to build in then structures that counteract that. And our book, again, which comes out in January of 09 is Enron and Other Corporate Fiascos, The Corporate Scandal Reader. And I can be reached at nancy.rapaport at unlv.edu. Thanks again for having me on.
2: Thank you very much. Well, at this point, we'll need to take a short break. When we return, we'll take a look ahead at corporate governance in the new year under a new president with Mary Mack. We'll be right back.
4: Visit WestLegalWorks.com to register for the 12th Annual Electronic Discovery and Records Retention Conference, being held December 10th and 11th in San Francisco. For more information, visit WestLegalWorks.com.
2: He was the gunner in your law school. I was captain of my law school's mock document review team. He's the last one to leave the office. Why leave work before 9 p.m.? You're just going to get stuck in traffic. And now he's kissing up to all the partners. Knowing that I made some partners a ton of money is all the reward I need.
1: Get this year's hottest gift for attorneys, the Perfect Associate. Available at PerfectPlush.com.
3: PerfectPlush.com, your source for legal humor. That's PerfectPlush.com.
4: Whether you're new in business or you're looking to improve your online image, visibility, and marketing, social media and networking are vital to your success. Explore the potential of these media with experts in the field via our convenient three-hour workshop. Visit www.searchitright.com and start making every click count for your business. With A-plus conferencing, you can have the parties on your conference calls individually built. A-Plus Conferencing, specializing in law firm conferencing services, has done what other conference providers have refused to do, allocate the expenses of each conference call to the participating parties. A-Plus Conferencing can also provide you with web and desktop video conferencing and deposition and court calls. Give Susan at A-Plus a call today at 888-239-3969 or check out A-Plus Conferencing at www.aplusconferencing.com.
1: Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to uh, welcome back Mary Mack, the Corporate Technology Counsel at Fios Incorporated. Uh, Mary, uh, what about you? What do you think uh, President Obama is likely to do to change things in the area of corporate governance going forward?
3: Well, I think one of one of the things I've heard from him is is modeling more of a servant leadership. Uh, type of behavior. So I think that they're, they're, the congress is likely to to pass things around uh shareholders having a say on um executive pay and things of that nature. Uh, and I, and I think also certainly the the organizations that are receiving government money will probably have more regulation, not just the automakers, but the um the financial institutions that are receiving money. Uh, will likely have more regulation more oversight. I think probably one of the areas I'd be looking at would be uh with the s e c and the c f t c uh possibly a change in in that oversight structure or or bolstering of that. We already see the uh the s e c coming out uh talking about disgorgement and clawbacks and not clawbacks in the e discovery uh, vernacular but Club X in terms of uh of of bonuses and th- and things of that nature um, or or uh, profits that were gained uh, due to activity that the s e c uh finds illegal so i th- I think that we're going to see
2: that is more regulation really going to solve the problem? we look back at the Reagan years when he pushed uh less regulation and we had quite a boom
3: well we well we certainly did and we have, um, if we just look in the last three months, with the bailout money, for example, uh, the purposes of, the, of the, ba- the bailout money were to get the, the credit markets going. And right now, there's a lot of fear, and there's not a lot of credit flowing, even though there's federal money going into going into organizations. So, a certain level of regulation may be necessary, but then again, regulation. Um, comes with responsibilities to report and then you have an oversight structure in it and it and it may calcify uh problems rather than solve them so i I think that that there's a there's a balance to uh to make in terms of in terms of regulation and 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 oversight but the um, where uh, with c d o s for example and credit default swaps there is no regulation there and uh, AIG is being bailed out because the situation that was created was one that was too big to fail, uh, or it was perceived to be too big to fail. Uh, and what, what do you guys think about that?
2: Well, it seems like AIG was, you know, presumably too big to fail and presumably Citibank was too big to fail and presumably the th- big 3 automakers are too big to fail and at some point in time we can't prop up this house of cards. We have to let some of it or all of it fail and let the let the market shake itself out. I mean, you're right that credit has not flowed, and it seems to me that we've got money into the wrong hands. Uh, it seems like the people that got the money, the banks and so forth, have kept the money to lick their wounds and are not letting it flow, because the, the, the major problem that I see is that uh, cash is simply not flowing at this point.
3: All right. So I see a difference between when the taxpayers fund something, like a bailout, and when, a, when an organization has raised its own capital. And it's taking its own risks, and and, and regulation around that. Uh, you know, it, it seems to me that 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 when you line up for taxpayer money, you're also lining up for a certain level of oversight.
1: Mary, what do you hear from the some of the clients? Who, I mean, you work with a lot of corporate clients uh, as a as a consultant and, and as an attorney. What what are you hearing from from them? From those who are really you know working out there in the trenches, so to speak.
3: I think one of the biggest fears out there in terms of uh, regulation is the f a s five uh from from the accounting board are you guys uh familiar with that that's where where it's uh where you need to it's proposed regulation and it, and it uh where you would need to disclose your litigation risks and costs um, which which, of course, the you know the defense bar and the and the and corporations are like, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, wait a minute. If we disclose what our you know what the downside and the upside would be in a particular litigation, that's information to give to the other side, and it it would unfairly prejudice, um, uh, and basically not assist shareholders because the the whole idea of disclosure is for shareholders to, um. You know, to get information, basically to protect their financial interest, but it it may be against their financial interest to disclose those risks around um, litigation and have that be out in the in the light of day rather than in terms of uh, legal strategy.
2: I don't really, I don't really buy that, Mary. I mean, it, it, the situation in, in the federal courts when you litigate things is requires early disclosure and full disclosure of of uh, the case that you intend to try, and inevitably, when someone in a case tries to keep information uh, from the other side, it gets discovered and blows up in their face.
3: Well, that's a good point, and you know, along those lines, the Sedona conferences and the magistrate judges have signed the cooperation proclamation, which. Um, which mandates that uh, that parties uh, collaborate and work together in the early stages of a case, um, particularly around e-discovery. But if you move backwards, it's all about the issues of the case. But it isn't necessarily around damages.
2: Well, damage is as an element of, of every case. You, you don't get recovery unless you can prove damages, so you've got to disclose on that point as well. I'm just—I don't—I don't buy it, and I, I, you know the Sedona the conference is a is a good step in it, but it's really duplicative of what the federal rules require in terms of disclosure.
3: Well, I think that's a little bit of what Nancy was talking about: is how do you change the human behavior? I mean, all of us have been educated in an adversarial system, uh, and to all of a sudden mandate cooperation as they did, or not, with the uh, meet and confer in the federal rules of, of civil procedure to you know and to include the the e discovery portion. Let's let's just say that some of us are um uh, kind of set in our adversarial ways. And so the magistrate judges have um basically blasted a cannon and said, Hey, wait a minute, you know, there's gonna be cooperation here and I think you see Judge Grimm with Mancia saying, Hey, just as what you're what is what you're saying, it's already in the rules.
2: Well, the ones that I think that are adversarial, um, and especially this, you see this, and I'll you know get some letters on this one, I'm sure, um, having been in a large firm, I, I understand the mindset, but in large firms, they tend to be more paper tigers. Uh, And not go to trial as frequently as some of the other lawyers. Now, granted, there are lawyers that do go to trial in large firms, but I think you find less adversarialness when you go to trial and you actually realize the consequences of of non-disclosure and find out what happens when the other side points out to the jury that you haven't disclosed a certain document, or that the judge orders jury instruction, or that there is some type of sanction that occurs like your evidence is excluded because you didn't disclose this information. It's the people that settle cases that are more adversarial than the people that actually try cases.
3: Interesting. Interesting. Well, certainly the the attorneys that I work with uh, do not hold back um, evidence or, or documents um, that... But that's not what they're talking about with the FAS-5 and the disclosure in your uh, in your SEC filings.
1: Well, you know, we're talking a lot about the, the mindset of litigators here, and we started out talking about the mindset of uh, corporate officials, and uh, they all may be pretty difficult to change, and, and that that's uh, going to be Congress's task perhaps uh, coming up with a scheme to do that, at least for some of the public companies and the companies that are looking for investment. But uh, we are getting near the end of the time that we have here today. Uh, and I, I know that before we close off, we did want to give uh, you, Mary, an opportunity to to uh, wrap up with your closing thoughts on this and also to tell our listeners uh, how they can find out more about you and hear, read your blog and uh, check some of your podcasts and webcasts. Well,
3: I I really appreciate the the opportunity to talk about this topic before Thanksgiving because we all do have a lot to be grateful for um certainly in this country and in our in our profession and I think that all of us uh who have been trained in uh in the law at this point have a a responsibility to assist in the restructuring uh and the modeling of behavior Uh, that's going to need to happen to move us out of this unprecedented uh, financial crisis. And my particular area of of expertise, of course, is in the e-discovery area. And we've been over at Fios. We've been talking about cooperation and collaboration and how to do that while serving the best interests of the client for for some years now. And you can you can uh, find us uh, at our educational portal at discoveryresources.org um, and uh, at our website at fiosinc.com, where we have a, a, a whole series of webcasts, uh, particularly around the financial crisis that your listeners may be. Uh, may be interested in how to how to structure if you're in the midst of it how to structure it so that you sustainably can get your business through uh, if you've got some litigation and inve- in investigations because of this uh, uh, crisis.
2: Well, thank you, Mary. It's been a pleasure to have you on the program. And, uh, Bob, that just about wraps it up for Lawyer to Lawyer this week. Remember, you can check out all of our Lawyer to Lawyer shows at
1: thelegaltalknetwork.com. Mary, thank you very much for being with us. And same, uh, thanks also to Nancy Rappaport. And uh, a reminder to our listeners that we're also on iTunes in the podcast library there. Craig, I'll talk to you next week. We will see you then. In the meantime, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Same to you. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Jake Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com.
2: The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Zakalakis